The Money Show. Business Unusual. The COP27 parallel universe, the language, the goals, the ambitions, the lies, the deceit, the failures, the hope, the ambition. And oh, my goodness gracious me, for our children and our grandchildren and our great grandchildren, I hope something useful comes out of COP27. But you rechristening it, Colin Cullis, with Business Unusual this evening as COP Out 27. That's a bit gloomy and miserable. It is. I don't normally take that sort of tone, but I have a reason for doing so. And that is, I was listening to some people who were looking at this and say, if you are not getting outraged by now and how pathetic we've all been at tackling this challenge, then you are too dim to remain on this planet, in which case you deserve the climate change that's coming your way. But we're not dim. We are anything but dim. And so uh, this evening, I want to try and balance the outrage with the optimism. But I believe you need some outrage first in order to get you to do something. The catch, though, is you don't do anything good while outraged. You do need to calm down, uh, which allows you then to appreciate it. If you can get that angry about it, you know that it must be a serious problem, something that deserves your attention. Then you can start looking for practical solutions and potentially start implementing them. So I call it a cop-out because for those who think, ah, is this like a recent issue? I'm not quite sure. Certainly, uh, younger generations might feel as if it's, you know, it's come on them very quickly. Uh, older generations, our generation, might try and spin that and say, well, we never knew anything about this. It's a lie. This is not a new thing. In fact, the 27 in COP already tells you it's been 27 years since they started taking this thing seriously. Uh, and effectively, that we're still sort of skirting around the issues is something that is absolutely crazy. It's the naked. It's the, the it's the naked self-interest. I, I, you know, I want people to stop using jet travel. I want other people to stop driving to work. I want other people to ride share. I want other people to take public transport. Firstly, because it clears the freeway for my five-liter car or whatever it is that I'm driving. Um, uh, but yeah, other people must do it, and I think that's half the problem. Is we expect other people to be doing it, and it's just not being done. Exactly right. And the bit, again, this is, this is to hopefully stoke a little bit of that thing that says, man, how were we duped by this lot for so long? Is to, is to just illustrate how long we've known exactly what the problem is, exactly what should be done, and exactly what we should do to fix it. And the person I'm going to turn to, because he's way more elegant and better at this than me, is Carl Sagan. Uh, an impressive storyteller. I, I would say he was, for his generation, well, I suppose it overlaps with David Attenborough, was having that similar very recognizable style of delivery. Well, he was asked to uh, brief or give, a, give a, a, some testimony to a U.S. committee on climate change. And I'm, I'm going to make the small distinction here between global warming and climate change, because at one point it was global warming. That's what it started with. The scientists had noticed that the, the, the world was getting warmer. Uh, and so the focus was about, guys, we've got to do something about global warming. It shifted to climate change when those scientists realized that the impact from simply a warming earth, would have all sorts of other catastrophic effects on the climate. So somebody would say, oh, but it's snowing a lot. Yeah, you obviously got it wrong with global warming. No, that's a consequence of global warming that you're getting, you know, the snowing in some areas, the horrible rains, etc. which is why we have those two words, almost interchangeable, but mean something quite different. But, but here is Carl Sagan. I've got three little clips. The full thing is 60 minutes. I'll leave it online. Um, of him talking about whose problem this is and, and the reason why it's taken us so long to actually grab the nettle, as it were, for why this is a problem. Because the effects occupy more than a human generation, there is a uh, tendency to uh, say that they uh, are not our problem. 
uh, of course, then they are nobody's problem. Uh, not on my tour of duty, not on my term of office. It's something for the next century. Let the next century worry about it. But the problem is that uh, there are effects, and the greenhouse effect is one of them, which have long time constants. If you don't worry about it now, it's too late later on. And so in this issue, as in so many other issues, uh, we are passing on extremely grave problems for our children uh, when the time to solve the problems, if they can be solved at all, is now. In 1985, he was saying that. Yeah, brilliant, wasn't he? Yeah. Al must be, a young Al Gore, to be fair, he must have been tortured knowing that he's really just trying to get this thing through, but he just cannot convince people enough to do something about it. And, and the reason for that is, well, multiple, but ostensibly, it's hard to get angry about something that, as Carl Sagan says, is really going to only become a major issue for you in 50 years' time. Certainly, it would have been at that time. And secondly, when there are so many other things to make you angry. So while we should be getting angry about climate change and what we do to, to do something about it, today you're more likely simply to remain angry at ESCOM. Because once again, man, oh man, we can't keep the lights on. And it's not like it's, a, you know, that wasn't a problem that just came out of nowhere either. Uh, but Greta Thunberg here is maybe a, a, a good indicator for saying she got angry to the point of not being able to speak. She did her climate protests. Uh, that got her noticed. It got a lot of other people angry. And then she too has moved to the point of saying, I'm not just going to be angry about this now. These adult generations, these politicians, these large industries, and certainly the fossil fuel industry, have simply lied about what they know and what they were willing to do to keep doing, uh, you know, doing what was needed. So she stopped talking to them. She wrote off the cop thing as being a scam. But she is speaking to people who are willing to listen uh, and those who are younger to say, look, it's up to us now because th th this other older generation is sort of just they're washing their hands of it. They're not going to do a whole lot. Um, and, and, and with a book that she's released, et cetera, it's probably going to start making some inroads in getting people to start appreciating just how big the problem is and what they need to do. Uh, but then on the other side, you get sort of activist groups, the lot that are throwing you know, soup at paintings or gluing themselves to the road and thinking this is how some are going to get people to say, oh, yes, this is all we need for, for sorting out climate change. But in some respects, they too are having, let me not call it a positive impact, but an impact nevertheless, thanks to this thing we've raised before called the Overton Window. Uh, and it's that weird process that if you present somebody with completely crazy sort of radical ideas, like I'm going to glue myself to the road and you can't drive cars anymore because, you know, this is killing the planet. Then the ones that are just a little bit uncomfortable that says, OK, well, we do have to cut down emissions and so make all cars, you know, non-internal uh, combustion in it, seem a little more likely. And, and that's the kind of potential thing that they'll have as a positive. Now, it can work the other way. Donald Trump illustrated this beautifully with these crazy crackpot ideas becoming sort of, you know, accepted political discourse. And certainly the Republican Party is going to have a long time to try and purge itself of all of the crazy stuff that he had. But nevertheless, this is this is the potential impact it can have. And if it can get us to see that the, the sacrifices we make for reducing carbon emissions being more palatable than having to deal with the full-on climate issues uh, that, that we're facing. Uh, certainly anybody in the Western Cape thinking, well, if those droughts that sort of almost got us to day zero are not going to come around once every thousand years at that opal, one every hundred years, but maybe once a decade, then people are suddenly saying, okay, what do I need to do? I'm, gonna, I'm willing to start changing what I need to do now. And then the second element, which again, ah, enough to make you just as angry, was the level of misinformation and disinformation <laughs> that was done. So despite us knowing in 1985 about what the actual re reality was, the fuel industry would have said, nah, it's not true. Scientists don't know what they're talking about and tried to have all sorts of silly studies and, you know, bullshit artists to tell us something else. And then the politicians who were sort of in their pockets would have gone along with it saying, well, you know, we don't know. We need to ask more questions. Let's have some more uh, uh, investigation into this. And the reason they did that is because they try to make this process the greenhouse effect. 
um, looked like it was a natural process, and so there's no harm to be done for it. Even though, and again, I'm going to defer to Carl Sagan here, he explains the difference between the natural part of it and the unnatural part of it. I'd like to stress that the greenhouse effect makes life on Earth possible. If there were not a greenhouse effect, the temperature would, as I say, be uh, 30 centigrade degrees or so colder, and that's well below the freezing point of water everywhere on the planet. Uh, the oceans would be solid after a while. Uh, a little greenhouse effect is a good thing. But there is a delicate balance of these invisible gases, and uh, uh, too much or too little greenhouse effect can mean too high or too low uh, a temperature. And here we are pouring enormous quantities of uh, CO2 and these other gases into the atmosphere every year with hardly any concern about its long-term and global consequences. I can listen to that guy all the time. Yeah, he's smart. I mean, just the the vision of Carl Sagan 40 years ago is astonishing. Um, And, yeah, he died quite young, didn't he? I think, I mean, we missed out on a lot of his scientific expertise and his brain. I mean, it was a pity. I wonder if uh, Steve Jobs took the old uh, black polar neck from, from Carl Sagan, because he was often seen in that, often he'd have that sort of white jacket on over it. But let me give you some green shits as well, because that, that should just get you to know, listen, guys have tried to you know, hoodwink us long enough, so we should definitely be angry and looking to do some more about it. But it's not to say that there's, it's, all, it's, all, it's all rubbish. Um, and there are some nice little things, and, and, and one of them, for example, a, a, a program called the Great Green Wall of the Sahel. Uh, you might have come across it. It was first mooted in 2007, uh, which was the sort of grand and slightly misguided idea that says if we could plant trees, 50 kilometer wide corridor across the width of North Africa, uh, 8,000 kilometers from Senegal to Djibouti, then we can stop the spread of the Sahara. Well, given that it was decreed by a bunch of sort of people sitting in some think tank somewhere uh, and, and I won't say forced, but certainly just imposed upon the good people living in those areas who know all too well what it's like having to live in an de- uh, uh, area that's uh, becoming desertified, was like, oh, we've seen this before. This is what colonizers came along and told us to do. And of course, that went completely pathetically. So unfortunately, the millions and millions of trees that have been planted for that a lot of them have died. Um, but what has come out of it is a realization, thankfully, finally, uh, that the way you tackle this is not by some grand scheme that you put on a map and then get some marketing uh, for, uh, is that you start speaking to those, those, those communities. And in the communities where they have managed to make a difference, the trees have thrived. The, the mm. climate has begun to change. They have managed to slow down the impacts of this particular thing. And that is a very good option, particularly in Africa, where we are going to face some of, you know, some of the harshest parts of it, given the wide range of, of climate that we have here and, and the very large population that we have, still growing population that we have to try and do it. Brazil's president kicked out the other old crazy, was chopping down all the forest. The new guy, well, the old guy coming back again, has said, I will pause uh, deforestation. He was kind of not bad at it in the past, so let's hope he holds us to it. Given that the former U.S. president was willing to just say, ah, Paris Agreement, I'm walking away. This is the world's largest emitter. For the longest duration, the U.S. has been pumping the CO2 into the air. The last president walked away from it. This one, Biden, has thankfully said, no, we're back in, and is looking to put a major commitment to lower that stuff. However, you've got you know, Trump looking to run again, and all bets are off as to how well he's going to be. Uh, China. The next biggest emitter, long roadmap for looking to grow and, 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 and do a lot more uh, emissions, have committed at least not to say, hey, it's our turn now and, and the global developed countries need to take responsibility. It's not our fault. Um, they've said, listen, we're going to peak at 2030 uh, and they will peak. They're going to go up quite a lot. We have discussed once before about how much uh, extra energy they're adding to the grid, but that they're somehow going to reduce it down by 2050. Now, I'll take that with a pinch of salt, but at least there is a commitment there. 
And even, you know, the crazy thing like the war in the Ukraine, what possibly good could come from that? Well, Europe has realized how reliant it is on Russia's gas and how, you know, potentially problematic it is to be reliant on gas in the first place. So perhaps there's an opportunity for developing nations who have got a lot of gas reserves and didn't really have a, a ready market to go and sell it to because they were kind of all taken care of to get a couple of years to sell that to countries like Europe. Uh, and then for Europe to say, okay, we really just got to stop using this stuff and, and moving on with all the other things. And so finally, with, with all the tech bros who in the past we tended to think, hopefully technology is going to come along and you know give us a magic bullet. Well, we've realized the tech industry is like all other industries. There is great opportunity. They are absolutely necessary in, in, in tackling this problem. But there are no you know saviors in that industry. They need regulation. They need guidance. They need investment, but they need to be watched as much as everybody else. And so hopefully the combination of all of these things finally gets us to the point with COP27 starting to look a little less like a cop-out and a little more like something that we can actually police uh, and, and get the climate change uh, pointed in the right direction. Fantastic, Colin. Thank you very, very much indeed. What started as pretty pessimistic has emerged as, yes, a little bit of hope. That's the point is giving up, frankly, because if you give up hope, there's going to be absolutely no option to save the future.